Welcome to the Murthy teleconference series designed to benefit employers of foreign nationals. We would like to take this opportunity to remind you that the information you're about to receive is exclusive copyrighted material of the Murthy Law Firm. Accordingly, any unauthorized recording is prohibited by law and cannot be disseminated without our prior written permission. Without further ado, it is our pleasure and honor to introduce attorney Sheila Murthy. Welcome. I'm Sheila Murthy, president and founder of the Murthy Law Firm. Thank you so much for joining us for today's teleconference, where we will discuss with you and share the latest information about H-1B-related RFEs or requests for evidence with the major issues that we see all the time about maintenance of status, right of control, specialty occupation-related subjects. Um, today, we... Uh, have seen that in the recent past, there's a lot more RFEs than there used to be in years in the past. And in general, if you work obviously with a more knowledgeable, experienced attorney or law firm, your likelihood of being successful is obviously greater because of the volume and experience, breadth and width of knowledge that a law firm such as the Murthy Law Firm will be able to have in handling cases for you, your employer, employees, and your company's benefit. Um, sometimes, as you know, with premium processing cases, there are RFEs as well, but you get the same opportunity that if you respond, you hopefully will get an answer back within 15 days as well. And so we touched upon the major issues which result in RFEs, which is the maintenance status, the right to control, specialty occupation, and experience-based credentials evaluations. We hope to delve into each of these four topics in greater detail. So with that in mind, uh, uh, by the way, I have two of my brilliant colleagues and attorneys who are with me in today's uh, telephone, uh, I guess, teleconference discussion, Korzad Mehta and Alyssa Klein, both of whom have extensive experience with H-1B non-immigrant uh, department-related issues. So let me get started, Korzad, if I can, with you on the matter of Simeo Solutions, because that's what's burning on everyone's mind. Sure, Sheila. Um, matter of Simeo Solutions is a uh, precedent case that uh, came out of the Administrative Appeals Office of the USCIS. The facts are very, very familiar to many of our clients because they probably uh, have had the situation arise. Uh, it was a um, matter of an employer, in this case, uh, Simeo Solutions, uh, transferring or relocating their employee to another uh, work site, uh, which was outside of the uh, metropolitan statistical area that they had originally anticipated the person would be filling when they filed mm -hmm. the, or working in rather, when they filed the H-1B petition. Mm -hmm. um, subsequently, USCIS discovered that the worksite had changed, mm -hmm. and they issued a notice of intent to revoke the H-1B petition, stating that, well, the individual has not been maintaining status because they have not been working pursuant to the terms and conditions of the petition in the work MSA. location in mm -hmm. the MSA. Uh, and uh, it, wa it wound its way through the administrative uh, appeals process until it got to the administrative appeals office. And the administrative appeals office effectively held, no, USCIS is right, and that a change of work location outside of metropolitan statistical area is considered a material change requiring an amended petition. And uh, that has uh, pretty far-reaching implications for many 
employers and uh, corporations which engage in uh, working at uh, client sites or, or in the staffing industry or in the cons consulting industry. Uh, so th in, in response to this case being um, issued by the Administrative Appeals Office, the USCIS initially put out, I guess you could call it an interim press release guidance type of thing, basically saying that the, for giving a grace period for those employers who had moved their employees without filing an amended petition to file an amended petition and get them, quote unquote, righteous with the law uh, before um, before August uh, 18th. On July 21st, the USCIS issued their final guidance, uh, wherein they um, gave employers up to January 15th, 2016, to file an amended petition. Now, there's a little bit of detail there, and I'll try to explain it to the best of my ability. Uh, those employers that changed uh, folks' work locations before April 9th, which was the date of uh, the um, issuance of the decision of Simio Solutions, have until January 15, 2016. Those who change their em uh, employer's location between April 10th and August 18th also have until January 15, 2016, within which to file an amended petition. However, after August 18th, so starting August 19, 2015, employers have got to plan that if they are going to be changing an employer, employee's work location to a location outside of a metropolitan statistical area, they must make sure that the amendment has been prepared and filed with the USCIS amending the work location prior to that individual entering the Which requires the location. LCA certification for the new work correct. location along with the H-1B amendment. So if it's after, on or after August 19, 2015, then all of those cases, you have to file the H-1 amendment as the employers before you're allowed to relocate or transfer or move the, uh, the consultant to start on the project. So if the project is starting next week, guess what? You should have already obtained the LCA well in advance. And if you know that you have certain projects that may come up, you might want to get the LCAs in advance so there's no panic at the 11th hour. And I think it's important to keep in mind that this definitely extends beyond just IT consulting. You have people who work remotely. You might be transferring, transferring an employee from one of your offices to another office across the country or outside of their current work location. So this really uh, applies to employers wide. It, yeah. This is not IT consulting specific. Exactly. And when we talk about maintenance of status and this whole issue with matter of Simio solutions and the impact, uh, we have to keep in mind that a lot of the people who are coming to your, you or your company or your business for filing H-1 petitions may be transitioning from student F-1 status to H-1B uh, or uh, they might have taken advantage of F1 st from F1 status, and they might have been using the curricular practical training or CPT, which has a whole different ball uh, sort of a set of rules because there's a lot of abuse and misuse in the system, which, Alyssa, I'd like you to just briefly touch upon some of those issues. Right, absolutely. So as opposed to Simio Solutions, where we're talking about somebody who's already in H1 being able to stay in H1, this is somebody who is changing from F1 to H-1B. And in general, whenever you're changing from one status to another in the U.S., you have to be maintaining your current status. So when USCIS looks at uh, applications to and petitions to change status from F-1 to H-1, they do tend to key in on individuals who have uh, availed themselves of CPT. And the student has by all means gone through the DSO and gotten approval, but it is a fairly complex issue and there are a lot of rules and 
um, a lot of problems can come up if the student themselves is not diligent about monitoring it. Um, They have to be sure to you know, that the whatever they're doing in terms of work, study, internship, cooperative education, or other type of internship or practicum that's required for their program is actually integral to the established curriculum. And that's something that the school themselves would make a determination of. But still, even then, the DSOs, you know, may not be entirely knowledgeable about all the ins and outs, and that's why it's always good to talk to a qualified immigration attorney. Um, But there's a lot of things a student has to keep in mind, such as, is this activity directly related to my field of study? Am I otherwise maintaining a full-time student status? Again, is it integral to the established curriculum? Um, And at what point in my education, in my F1 stay, am I permitted to even start CPT? Okay, so thank you so much, Alyssa. That's helpful, but I'm sure all of these RFEs are food for much concern from an employer's point of view because obviously you want to understand what to expect and how to try to overcome these issues. The next big issue that we see, which is very common, is issues dealing with the right to control. In consulting company relationships, of course, where there's end clients and mid-vendors and all kinds of relationships, we see this whole issue about give us evidence or show us proof that there is an employer-employee relationship between you and your H-1B employee and as consulting companies with the employer-vendor and client model, this poses significant challenges for each of you that are in that business. And even some of you who are not in that business are seeing, even hospitals and certain other businesses are seeing questions about this whole issue. So let's get to it, Korzad. What are the kinds of issues and concerns about you know showing proper evidence, et cetera, that's required? Well, you know, when an employer is required to show that they maintain the right to control their employee through to their end client, Uh, oftentimes the end client is not directly their client. It is a client of one of their clients or it is a client of one of their clients who works through a preferred vendor. So there's a series of contractual chains that um, and, and other supporting documentation that would support a employer's ability to show right to control in an H-1B petition. And oftentimes the end client, the ultimate, ultimate place where the employee is going to work is working through the conduit of their preferred vendor or another party that they directly contract with. And consequently, they may not be able or willing to cooperate and provide many of the documents, such as as a letter, also known as an end client letter because it comes from them, or a statement of work or an invoice or some other documentation, which would show that they are indeed a party to the filing and are able to, um, are are effectively hosting the individual and benefiting from their work, though that individual is controlled by their their employer, the consulting company. Uh, In a June 11, 2014 open house with the California Service Center, USCIS has said that while documents from the end client may help USCIS determine whether a valid employer-employee relationship will exist, this type of documentation is not required. An employer is able to submit a combination of any documents established by a preponderance of the evidence that the required relationship will exist. The types of evidence listed in the memorandum are not exhaustive, 
Adjudicators will review and weigh all the evidence submitted to the determine whether they have met their burden in establishing the qualifying employer employee relationship will exist. Well, all okay. that to say, basically, mm-hmm. that though end client documentation is very valuable, it by itself is its absence by itself should not mean the death knell of a petition. Right, uh, and the reason you were reading this out was specifically to explain that basically USCIS is just show us some strong evidence of that, the fact that you, as an H-1B petitioning employer, in fact, have the right to control and have the employer-employer relationship, and you're not just delegating or dumping all of it on other parties and taking zero responsibility to monitor and manage your employee as a part of your team instead of somebody else's team. That was the nuts and bolts of it. Right, exactly. And the famous Newfield memo from January 2010 does go into this non-exhaustive list of possible documents that an employer could provide USCIS to show that they maintain that right to control an employer-employer relationship, even though the person might be at a third-party site. And the quote, Krizad, that, that you uh, just cited here, that's that same sentiment has been repeated in multiple USCIS Q&As and published guidance on this on this topic. So again, while you should try and get, if you can, the best type of evidence, such as client and vendor letters or contracts and work orders, um, really it, it's not it's not required under the regulation. And the employer should be able to provide any evidence that otherwise demonstrates the employer-employee relationship, such as showing what the person is going to be doing, showing that they're reviewing their work, um, showing that they have you know internal policies, maybe review policies, things of that nature, um, and otherwise demonstrating that, again, that they ultimately are overseeing them despite the distance. Okay. So next, let's jump to the uh, the title of the specialty occupation. Again, this is becoming a really hot issue where the USCIS believes that the person's education doesn't perfectly and squarely match with the job duties the person is performing. And so the USCIS is tending to take a far more restrictive interpretation or approach of what exactly is a specialty occupation compared to what they've been doing in the past. So, for example, if you have a bachelor's degree or the equivalent, you're supposed to have it in the specific specialty, for example, a software engineer or computer engineer, presumably in computer science or information technology, shouldn't jump to a totally different, you can't say I have it in master of fine arts or something else. So let's look at this. So strategically, how does this work, Korzad? Well, strategically, when you prepare an H-1B petition, you want to frame the job and its duties to kind of slot into a requirement of a degree in a specific field. Now, there are certain occupations where a variety of degrees could conceivably be acceptable to enter into. One that pops to mind is computer systems analyst. Uh, Sometimes individuals with business degrees with a technology lean can also uh, enter into that occupation. And employers who, for H-1B purposes, kind of accept those wide wide variety of degrees to enter into that occupation may, may find some challenges. Because like you said, Sheila, the USCIS says, well, if it's a specialty occupation, it requires expertise in a specific field. And, you know, a wide-ranging bunch of uh, acceptable related fields can kind of undercut that. Uh, something that's been successful for us has been to really explain very clearly what the job entails, make sure the duties show shades of the required uh, 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 degree in a specific field, 
uh, and uh, consequently show that it's a specialty occupation from there. Okay. And so the whole reason why specialty occupation is because the statute itself says H-1B is a specialty occupation. And in order to do specialty occupation work, the work should be so complex and sophisticated as to require at the very minim- minimum a bachelor's degree or higher level education in order to get the job done. So the USCIS, when somebody says, my person has a business degree in BCom, for example, a three-year BCom from India, and then the person's supposed to be doing this highly sophisticated information technology-related work as a software engineer, they're like, gotcha. You can't do this, and hence it's not a specialty, so we're going to deny your H-1 petition, or here's your RFE, etc. Uh, how does it work with MBAs or business? What are we finding with yeah, that? No, excellent point. Uh, USCIS uh, has definitely paid more attention to business degrees and H-1B petitions where petitioners are saying a business degree, plain, simple business degree is is required and that's it. And, um, you know, this could be like, of course, I said the computer systems analyst role, but it could also be other non-tech, non-tech uh, professions where the employer requires a business degree, and USCIS may come back and say a business degree on its own, without you know a concentration or further specific field of study, is is not going to be sufficient for H one B in general. So again, I think it's important that the framing is done right in the case to make sure that when you're preparing a position, that you're you're preparing the details of the petition, that you are making it clear that the duties do relate back to that that degree and that is going to be whether or not it's in an IT related field or if it's a non IT related field um, <clears throat> but obviously the best cases are when the degree that the degree that the person has clearly relates to the job offer like a software developer position and the person has a computer science degree right so the next trend that we're seeing which some of you may have either read or heard or unfortunately experienced yourselves is where the USCIS is issuing a notice of intention to revoke a previously approved H1 petition or even a notice of intention to deny a NOID or a NOIR where there are multiple cap subject H1B petitions that have been filed for the same employee or beneficiary using the same end client letters or documents because now they're assuming that even though employer A and employer B filed for the same candidate employee X, that by using the same underlying documents that there must be some kind of a relationship between the two entities, some kind of collusion or fraud or something going on, which is why they are threatening to revoke or deny these cases. Uh, so, Korzad, what's the problem with that? Is there a problem, concern? Well, this rises out of a tactic that was used in years past by employers who were you know, faced with the fact that H-1B visa numbers are numerically limited per fiscal year, wanted to increase the chances that their particular petition would be selected in the quote-unquote H-1B lottery for that fiscal year. And consequently, they would file multiple petitions for the same beneficiary in the same Uh, employment um, opportunity to increase their chances. And uh, I want to say 07, 08 is when the USCIS promulgated a regulation Mm -hmm. that put the kibosh on that and effectively said that an employer may not file in the same fiscal year more than one H-1B petition on behalf of the same alien if the alien is subject to the numerical cap. Uh, In, you know, what what we've seen recently is that USCIS has taken 
their, I don't want to say definition, but what they consider an employer and expanded it to also include related entities, such as a parent com- a company or a subsidiary or an affiliate, um, and are really scrutinizing petitions that are filed on behalf of the same Im- same person in the same location uh, for a same or similar job um, job opportunity and issuing noids or nors or, or RFEs, trying to determine whether it was in fact a related or affiliated entity or the same employer filing multiple petitions uh, or that they were unrelated and it wasn't for the same uh, same um, job opportunity. Okay. Thank you. Right. So if they do, if USCIS does believe that related entities such as parent, such as a parent company, subsidiary or affiliate, if they believe that these related entities um, do not have a legitimate business need to file more than one H-1B petition for the same individual, USCIS is likely going to request uh, for additional evidence or perhaps a notice of intent to deny. And we've even seen notices of intent to revoke come up. One may have gotten approved and then the second one is reviewed and there you go, RFE on one, notice of intent to revoke on the other. So if any of the related entities fail to demonstrate a legitimate business need, separate and apart from that other company, for the need to file this petition, um, then all the petitions filed on that, that individual's behalf by all the companies will be denied or revoked. So that's a little scary. And so a lot of companies that were historically doing this in prior years haven't had a problem. But from the last year or two, this has suddenly become a big issue from 2014, I believe. It's really started rearing its ugly head. And so we're seeing more and more of the RFEs or NOIDs or NORs. So prior cases where people have already been working for the past year are now suddenly getting denials because they're changing jobs or employers or somehow it's come to the attention of the USCIS that this case can now be investigated. Um, and really, the purpose, as, as Korzada earlier pointed, was to remove the incentive to, for an employer to file multiple petitions, either with themselves or with related entities, unless they can show that they were two completely separate jobs, completely separate positions, and not the same underlying position. Yeah, and, and you know, I wouldn't go as far as to say that this is you know hyper common, but it's not hyper rare either. This happens, mm-hmm. and you know, we've seen in our consults, um, you know, several notices of intent to deny from USCIS alleging that more than one company is related because they filed H-1B petitions for the same end client, sometimes even using this exact same job description. <laughs> We've even heard of some where USCIS has discovered that two or more companies also have the same or similar content in their respective websites uh, or are, uh, or their petitions have a similar um, language in supporting documents and petition letters and, and, and uh, other materials submitted with the filing. Um, these factors have oftentimes, oftentimes led USCIS to conclude that although these may be ostensibly different entities, uh, they're acting as if they're related entities, as the term is mentioned by the regulation. So they may not be related insofar as a business relationship, but because they're acting in concert, that in and of itself is enough. And that kind of plays into what I was discussing previously about how USCIS seems to have expanded how they're mm-hmm. interpreting this. And ultimately, it's the same job opportunity is, is what it comes down to. Mm-hmm. If both companies are offering the same project, same work locations, not really two separate and distinct mm-hmm. needs. Exactly. Okay, so that if, if you've now figured out all of these three or four crazy things, there's also the rule that allows, unlike in the green card case where no amount of experience can equate to a college degree, in the H-1B context, the law allows, for example, 
an employer to use three years of work experience equals to one year of college degree in trying to establish using experience-based credentials evaluations. However, whenever an employer tries simply to use experience-based credentials evaluations or experience-based equivalencies instead of a proper four-year degree or its equivalents, we're seeing a lot more RFEs or problems. So I'll have both Alyssa and Corzat talk a little bit about those issues. Right. So people have been using these experience evaluations for ages and ages. It is absolutely permissible for someone to qualify for H-1B based on a combination of education and experience. But what we've seen is heightened scrutiny on the quality of evaluations that are being provided and the nature of the, uh, the source of the evaluation, who is making this expert opinion on behalf of, of the company and the individual. Uh, so recent RFEs have attempted to impose what is clearly more strict requirements on these credential evaluations by college and university professors acting as independent consultants, okay, which is different than our traditional evaluations for just a four-year degree to a four-year degree, which may be just done by not a professor at, from a university, but in-house from an actual private evaluation company. Um, so USCIS in these cases for the experience evaluations will request documentation to clearly establish that the, the that the professors writing these opinions um, are qualified as experts. Uh, they'll re request um, for specific instances where past opinions were accepted as authoritative and, and by whom. So really digging in on who is writing these evaluations and that they're qualified to do so. I think it's important to remember that these aren't new requirements. Correct. That uh, USCIS has always appeared, at least in, in, in the, on the books, has required that when an individual is showing that their bachelor's degree level of education is s through some combination of education experience or even completely experience only, um, can uh, sh can show the backup for it. You know, when I was in high school, my uh, physics uh, teacher always used to say, you know, you have to show your units through each problem to uh, to come to your um, conclusion. And that's what USCIS is effectively asking here. They want to see the backup. Mm -hmm. uh, and they want to clearly show how the conclusions were reached by this expert and show what that basis was for the conclusions with the cit citations to any research material that they that that expert may have used to come to their conclusion. Um, oftentimes, USCIS asks, uh, asks us to provide a letter from the registrar of the evaluator's college or university establishing that the professor, that would be the person who's the expert who's writing the letter, is authorized to grant college-level credit on behalf of the institution, holds at least a bachelor's degree in the field of study that he or she is evaluating, and is employed by the college or university. Uh, other requests for evidence also ask for proof that the college or university where this person is working is accredited uh, for pertinent pages of the institution's catalog showing that as a program for granting college-level credit based on training or experience and evidence of the total amount of college credit that the registrar or evaluator may grant for the beneficiary's training or experience. Right, exactly. Like you said, this, you know, the regulations have existed. It's, it's definitely a different level of enforcement that we're seeing from USCIS. And maybe there's some... Um, overzealousness there, but the it is written that there are different requirements absolutely to satisfy an experience evaluation. Exactly. And a lot of times what we're seeing also is the whole issue about the USCIS examiners not looking at the issue of the standard, the preponderance of the evidence standard, 
uh, by law, if all of you go back to what we call rules of evidence as lawyers. So what is the criminal case? As all of you know from watching lots of TV all the time with CSI and Miami and whatever, the bottom line is in a criminal case, the government has to prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt. And so if there's even a slight in, uh, uh, suspicion that there could be a gray area, then the defendant is allowed to go scot-free. The quasi-criminal proceedings, it is by clear and convincing evidence. So in fraud and misrepresentation, the USCIS has to show that the party, by clear and convincing evidence, committed the particular fraud. And if not, then it's a problem. The government didn't meet its burden of proof. But in a civil case, like an H-1B petition filing or in most civil cases, as the petitioner or employer, all you need to do is meet the burden of proof by a preponderance of the evidence. And what does that mean? That means more likely than not. And in a percentage for most of you who are engineers on this conference call with your tech companies, that means 51% or greater chance that the documents or the evidence that you submitted shows and proves that the person is qualified, is in the specialty occupation, has the level of knowledge, et cetera, to get the job done. Right. And the other thing to keep in mind is that USCIS cannot simply dismiss evidence provided without specifically explaining why it is insufficient. And we do see sometimes that RFEs or decisions state that the petitioner provided, for example, a generic description of the job duties, even when in the actual case the petitioner provided or the employer provided an elaborate description with percentages of time spent on each duty, etc. Um, so again, we do still see some we boilerplate template language where USCIS is not sufficiently explaining what really is the problem. And it's, it's hard to say why that's happening, but they really should not be doing that. So, you know, when we respond to these issues, when we respond to RFEs, we do things such as, you know, include testimony or affidavits under the penalty of perjury that the employer is providing. And we do articulate that this is evidence that must be reviewed under the appropriate standard of proof, Sheila, like you just explained, the 51%. Another exactly. thing to keep in mm -hmm. mind is that oftentimes USCIS will want to make an adverse decision or, or, or draw an adverse inference, but they don't necessarily say on what basis they're making that adverse adjudication, that adverse inference um, that's not in your favor. And the, the regulations clearly say that if there's any derogatory evidence that they have, uh, that the USCIS has on which basis they're making one of their conclusions or assumptions or interpretations, they've got to disclose that. Mm -hmm. And that has to be out uh, out there and available for you to rebut. Uh, and that also plays into this whole standard of proof and how, you know, it is the petitioner's burden to show by a preponderance that, the, uh, that everything shows that well, what they're saying is truthful. Absolutely. And so just some quick sort of overview issues about RFEs, as most of you are aware from the documents, for those of us or many of you who have probably unfortunately seen RFEs that are being issued on a routine basis, as we talked about the increase of USCIS issuing RFEs, is employers generally have up to 87 days to respond to the RFE. And while the general thought process is, let's take it and reply it and get an answer immediately, Often we found that that can actually cut against you. 
for example, in some consultations, the, the, when the people speak to me, they have said, well, my employer and my attorney have already sent in the answer. And after talking to me, they realized they could have, shouldn't have included one or included a couple other different pieces of evidence that were available. But guess what? You can't send a second RFE response to that because the government's either going to get confused or denied or not even look at the second case. It's much better to prepare it correctly and do it well and try to get the approval rather than rushing. And I have famous words that I remember saying almost 20 years ago when a person said to me, Miss Murthy, Miss Murthy, we want you, you to file for us immediately. And I said, you can get anybody in the country to file for you in a day. But if the choices generally in complex cases are you can either get a slow approval or a quick denial. And so I often prefer, and I said, I'm guessing you would prefer a slower approval to a faster denial. And the client, of course, laughed. And my whole theory with that is, you know, you don't want to cut corners. You don't want to rush. You don't want to wish you had done it stronger or better before. Do it right and do it right the first time. If you get an RFE, try to do it right and comprehensively rather than trying to do it piecemeal and wishing, oh, I wish I had talked of this or thought of this if I'd spent two or three extra days or an extra week or two thinking about an issue. There's a reason the government gives you 87 days. Take advantage of it. Do the best and try to get that approval, especially if you've been lucky to be selected in the lottery in the first place if it's a cap subject petition, because on an average of one in three cases anyway is selected in, in the lottery. Also, if uh, the USCIS wishes instead of an RFE, they can issue a notice of intention to deny, which for which you only have 30 days instead of 87 days. So those are more time sensitive, of course. And so some like three weeks by the time you actually get it in the mail. Even. Right. So very, very short time to turn those around. Exactly. I think Alyssa made a very good point that if you only have two or three weeks to reply, but you still want to do the best you can rather than filing it in a day and then wishing you had done it slower, you know, more carefully and slow, more, much more slowly. Also, so I'm go also ahead. Bear in mind that um, when it comes to these uh, time frames, um, oftentimes, you know, people will count in an additional three days. So you're saying 87 days. The regulatory uh, time frame to respond to an RFE is 84 days, but the three days are tacked on for mail delivery uh, because many times uh, RFEs are um, issued by mail. You get them in the mail. Same thing for NOITs. If they come in the mail, you can add on the extra three days. However, in premium processing cases, oftentimes the RFE and the NOID are faxed. You get them same day, so you don't get to take advantage of those extra three days. So that's something to keep in mind also yeah. when responding. Monitor the dates on that they write that they give does you the their form, deadline. But does the form have that uh, the, the 84 date or does the form have the 87 dates in the premium processing faxed cases? Uh, both. <laughs> they they, the they say they say both. They say eighty four day so eighty uh, eighty seven days eighty four days if uh, if it delivered by. But they do give you a deadline anyway. They do. Okay, good, good. So I mean, keeping in mind and that fact that we're very sensitive that many of you are taking time in the middle of your day to participate and attend these fantastic teleconference sessions where the amazing, brilliant Murthy Law Firm colleagues that I have the privilege and honor of working with each day and that you have the, the inkling because of hearing them have this conversation and discussion to enlighten uh, you on topics that may be of interest to you. Uh, we want to continue to offer 
our services at Murti Law Firm should you ever need it. If you are already using the Murti Law Firm, you are a very, very wise and smart business decision makers. And if you're not, it's never too late to hop onto the best bandwagon on this planet. We do. Uh, we have a brilliant team of attorneys, paralegals, and staff, and we look forward to continuing to take care of you. And even if you never hire us, you are welcome to take advantage of all the fabulous, free, useful services that we provide for the benefit of employers and employees and the immigrant community, because at the end of the day, America is a nation of immigrants, and we thank you for being a part of the business process and continuing to help both help others to accomplish their American dreams and also give opportunities and jobs to so many other people who are richly deserving of it. On behalf of Alyssa Klein, Korzad Mehta, and myself, Sheila Murthy, and our entire Murthy Law Firm family, we thank you for participating in today's teleconference on H-1B RFEs, and we look forward to having you join us again next month, the first Wednesday of each month. Thank you and have a great day.